just lead them by the ring in their nose in the direction that they think they want to go in, and you get a lot of money out of them in as short a period of time as possible, and, uh, and you control it, and you call the shots, and I always feel just great afterwards. Welcome to The Underbelly, the official podcast for the curatorial, archival, and emotional findings of the Belly Research Institute where we release our voices, nightmares, and meditations. Like many friends, we are feeling fury about the easement of federal legislation that will threaten platforms for sex workers to secure work, to screen clients, and to communicate with and support one another. In this episode, we examine the operations and current manifestations of stigma of sex work perpetrated by the normals. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Center for Whore Mysticism, and the now-empty vaults of the sex sexagentillion bracket cash piggies. The text and excerpts featured in this episode pull from writing by us and friends on current happenings nationwide that have targeted platforms and venues for sex work, and that we believe demonstrate how anti-sex work stigma of the present manifests, as well as where its bearings lie. First, we'll read the text Against Stigma, Not Sex Work by Irma VIP, originally published on bellyresearchinstitute.com. Stigma is what makes sex work potentially dangerous for sex workers, not sex work itself. Stigma exists in a nexus of capitalist exploitation of bodies, cis-heteropatriarchy, and white supremacy, not in a vacuum of morals as it is commonly treated. The author wishes to argue with himself here, and say instead that these things and other forms of policing of bodies, such as health, psychiatry, and hygiene, are what constitute morals and morality. I.e., there is no vacuum of morals. Period. Stigma, meaning a mark of shame, is branded on the life choices and life events of sex workers by peers, family, university researchers, sex work abolitionists, feminists, and the state. Sex work will always be called a cause of a sex worker's life crisis, rather than the conditions of isolation due to stigma or the myriad conditions of white supremacy and cis-heteropatriarchy that might make their lives difficult. Stigma isolates sex workers, making them more vulnerable to dangerous scenarios and violence across the infinitely varying lines of gender and racial identities and so-called state borders that sex workers inhabit. Stigma makes it less possible for marginalized trans, black, brown, youth, and migrant sex workers to secure basic survival in this world, such as housing, screening options for clientele, physical and mental health resources, and support networks. The way sex work is stigmatized is similar to and often directly in interaction with the stigma of having a mental illness, physical disability, or criminal record, and this shows up whenever a sex worker talks about their work and are interpreted as a person that falls into the binary of either pitiful victim or crazed pervert. Stigma says that sex work is different than other paid work because sex workers use their bodies, their sacred bodies. It's true. And so does your service job, your tech job, your teaching job. These too make you use your sacred body for work. Imagine being asked if you were forced into the paid work you do by everyone that you told about it. Imagine being paternalistically talked to every time you brought up your paid work. Just like your paid work, sex work is something people do to survive, to eat, to have some stability and fund whatever it is they care about. Imagine the risks associated with long desk shifts. Where are the rescue brigades for desk workers? Stigma says that sex work is different because sex workers are selling sacred sex. Sex is different for everyone. Most of the whoring I do, I don't even consider sex. My sex is still very important and a great source of joy for me. Stigma tells us that the consensual sex industry enables sex trafficking, but not the internet, cars, or femicidal patriarchy and rape culture. 
We're of course aware that the internet is being targeted with FOSTA and SESTA, and we will return to these bills throughout the episode. But still, these are really an attack on sex work, not on the internet alone. Stigma erases the white supremacist history of anti-trafficking campaigns, which were a xenophobic response to racial diversity in the U.S., a reframing of the myth of white slavery, which has evolved now to simultaneously victimize and criminalize people of color that are doing sex work. Moral panic about sex trafficking results in increased funding of law enforcement, who brutalize, shame, harass, and imprison sex workers. Johns, sex work clients, feel entitled to act disrespectfully or violent towards sex workers because the position of the sex worker is stigmatized. Management at shitty strip clubs feel more entitled to be paternalistic towards strippers because the position of the sex worker is infantilized, and this makes strippers less likely to go to management when a John is being shitty to them. This is just one of the many examples of the cycle of stigma. There are many hustles, many ways to make money and survive, legal or illegal, and to say that someone is doing sex work as an absolute last resort, and that they have no choice in the matter, is to 1. believe in the logic of capitalism that wants us to choose to work when we maybe wouldn't have to as much, 2. erases the agency of sex workers, and 3. offers nothing but useless and stigmatizing pity rather than material support that can improve the conditions of their life and work. If you want to disrupt the cycles of stigma that put sex workers at risk, begin by recognizing and acting in accordance with the fact that it is not sex work inherently that is dangerous for sex workers, but the stigma situated in conditions of oppression and marginalization around it that makes sex work difficult and dangerous for sex workers. So where and how does anti-sex work stigma manifest in the present, and how can it be traced to its history of moral hygiene? We venture next to Irma VIP's Places of Work, under recent scrutiny by the health pigs. Suck my dick, kiss my ass. This is an excerpt from Sasha Durakov's new piece, The Fragrance of Citizenship, The Accredity of Others, Towards Health Skepticism. The city of Minneapolis commissioned an unannounced investigation on 17 adult entertainment clubs in Minneapolis called the Environmental Health Assessment in City-Licensed Adult Entertainment Establishments Testing for Sources of Contagion, following, quote, complaints from public and concern from city inspectors. This was in November of 2017. In addition to strip clubs, three well-known gay bars and clubs were investigated as well. This was quickly followed up by a second, quote, worker-centered report by the University of Minnesota's Urban Research and Outreach Engagement Center, commissioned and funded by the Health Department, which involved interviewing 24 workers on conditions and practices within the clubs. As a result of the first report, the city will soon be passing more strict regulations on the clubs and workers. The narrative produced by the health department is fragile and, examined even superficially, appears as a humorous exercise in hyperbole and panic. Three consecutive panels on a PowerPoint produced by the city of Minneapolis are obviously leading for any reader paying attention. 
The first panel, called Epidemiological Risk, defines OPIMs, or Other Potentially Infectious Material, as fluids, including semen and vaginal secretions, in which disease could be present and come into contact with an entry point, hangnail, broken skin, eyes, lips, mucous membranes, etc. The second panel, Disease Concerns, simply lists unrelated infectious diseases like Zika, Ebola, and HIV. And the third, Testing for Semen, colon, Field Sampling Procedures, informs the reader that investigators used black lights and blue lights with orange goggles to search for semen in the adult establishments. Not once do they say that they have ever found HIV-infected semen in any of the strip clubs, not to mention Zika or Ebola, but they let the reader draw the conclusion that it could be there. Take a moment to consider all the hypotheticals the health department required to retroactively convince the public that these raids and investigations were necessary. Semen potentially could be infectious, such potentially infectious fluid could contain HIV, Zika, or Ebola. Strip clubs could have infectious semen and be a source of contagion. We can play this game too. Blood is an OPIM and could be infectious. Infectious blood could contain HIV or Ebola. Members of the health department could have nosebleeds or small cuts on their fingers and could be a source of HIV or Ebola throughout the city. Therefore, a raid is necessary. As entertaining as that would be, we are in no way advocating for more raids or investigations, but rather in order to question why we do it in the first place when no credible risk exists. But we can't stop there. We need to ask, what do we even mean by credible risk when it comes to health and sanitation? And to go further, what is hygiene or sanitation or health for that matter? It should be unsettling that we tacitly accept the authority of institutional powers, the health department, the CDC, local health commissions, public health administrations, or the police acting for them to conduct operations in their names without being able to define them. Just as hygiene has been used to condemn sex work, as shown by Sasha Durakov in what we just heard, another go-to condemnation of sex work is the accusation that it might harbor risk for human trafficking. Sasha writes of hygiene going unquestioned as an authoritative and objective index for the filthiness of sex work, and in the same manner, anti-trafficking operations often go tacitly unquestioned by the public as ethical and always well-intending. Trafficking, too, like health or hygiene, lacks any clear definition, and since its conception as a term, it has been conflated with sex work, prostitution, and the, quote, commercial sex trade. Web search that phrase alone, commercial sex trade, and every result will be about human trafficking and sexual exploitation rescue organizations. But this phrase literally just means prostitution, which is the commercial trade of sex. To explore the condemnation of sex work as a risk factor for human trafficking, and in relation to recent local happenings, We'll read now from some updates from the Belly Research Institute's Department for the Study of Normological Men. These follow the Super Bowl occupation of the Twin Cities in February 2018, which brought with it intensive citywide hype and panic about trafficking. 
Unsurprisingly, we saw live remnants of the anti-prostitution and moral hygiene history of anti-trafficking projects. See the Belly Research Institute reader on this, The Myths of Sex Trafficking. Emerge in the city-funded investigations and accompanying coverage leading up to the Super Bowl. I highly recommend giving this reader of scholarly essays a look-through for a sense of the racially motivated origins of so-called anti-trafficking operations, how their bearings lie in eugenicist movements and the policing of deviant social and sexual behavior of women, as well as the surveillance and criminalization of women crossing borders. One report published by the University of Minnesota's Urban Research Outreach Center notes, and then ignores, their finding that the data are inconclusive as to the extent of trafficking by a third-party facilitator in relation to the noted increase in online ads for sex during major sporting events. This report still recommends increasing surveillance of sex work and the production of ever-stigmatizing trafficking awareness-raising coverage in the Twin Cities. We saw in Minneapolis strip clubs, in the local newspapers, and on bus stop posters the presumption that more ads online, more out-of-town workers, or new-to-town worker ads posted to online platforms is generally accepted as means for creating panic about trafficking and as leverage to police sex work. Of course we see what is behind this trend generally, the presumption that sex work is a vacuous gateway for sex trafficking, now too in the proposed federal legislation acts FOSTA and SESTA, which would further criminalize, stigmatize, and marginalize sex workers, sex work, sex workplaces, and sex work platforms by framing them as dangers to public health. Those are the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act and the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, which passed this March. Though these are supposed to take effect January 1st, 2019, We've already seen in less than a week of SESTA passing the disappearance of the escort and hooker sex worker forums on Reddit, censorship and threats of heightened surveillance on sex worker forums, bad date lists, and platforms for promotion, as well as the shutdown of the personal section of Craigslist. All these motions remove access to safer ways for sex workers to find work and to have the resources that any other workers would want. Though it is not as common for politicians, journalists, and carceral feminist reformers to talk about the immoral profession, they now seek desperately, under microscopes and deep in the annals of city ordinances, to condemn the bodily autonomy of those that do sex work. This reforming of the old social evil fits with the more diffuse trending forms of sanitization of the present moment, which stripper friends in New Orleans have framed in terms of gentrification. Which brings us to New Orleans, where strippers recently filled the streets protesting the raids and closures of their workplaces, much-loved strip clubs on Bourbon Street. This is a pamphlet by anonymous strippers in New Orleans called Leave Us Alone, No Pigs in Our Clubs. On Friday evening, January 19th, agents from the Louisiana Office of Alcohol and Tobacco Control the 8th District New Orleans Police Department and the Louisiana State Police raided four strip clubs in New Orleans French Quarter, suspending the club's liquor licenses, shuttering their doors, and confiscating internal surveillance footage. The raids appear in tandem with the City Council and City Planning Commission, or CPC, recent production and upcoming review of an Adult Live Performance Venues Study, or ALPV which recommends both separating and limiting the number of strip clubs in the Viewcar Entertainment District, the pedestrian mall section of Bourbon Street. The raids have continued into late January, bringing the total number of clubs suspended to eight. The clubs in question are 
Dixie Divas, Hunk Oasis, Rick's Cabaret, Rick's Sporting Saloon, Barely Legal, Scores, Stilettos, and Temptations. Several of the clubs remain closed indefinitely. A ninth, Lipsticks, closed just days before the raids. A hearing on their various liquor license suspensions, including charges brought against the clubs, is slated for February 1st. These raids have left hundreds of people without an income overnight. Sparse information is being released, even to club lawyers, on what violations prompted the suspensions. On February 6th, the CPC will hold a public hearing on the ALPV study and the proposal to limit Bourbon Street Strip Club's ability to open, stay open, or reopen. The study recommends that clubs be closed due to their secondary negative effects, though it presents no hard data in support of this claim. Mayor Mitch Landrieu's office placed attorney Scott Bergthold on a $15,000 retainer to advise on the ALPV study. His firm, adultbusinesslaw.com, litigates against adult businesses on behalf of cities and counties. The local press praises his involvement and continually allege that strip clubs harbor human trafficking. Friday's raids, as with the October 2015 raids called Operation Trick or Treat, uncovered not one instance of human trafficking or the presence of underage workers. A recent ban against 18 to 20 year old women working as strippers led to a still ongoing Jane Doe lawsuit from three women after losing their jobs. Like the citywide measures, the statewide age ban was drafted, quote, to protect young women. During Friday's raids, strippers and waitstaff described being detained and isolated from one another and their possessions, while having their IDs run for prior arrests and outstanding warrants, and their photographs taken without consent in their work attire. Those who resisted were handcuffed, and many described being ridiculed, degraded, and molested by cops. In response to strippers' protests of the conduct of all male officers during the raids, they laughed and replied, you lost your right to decency when you became a stripper. This sentiment is not new to us, as it's the response we get from many people in our lives. As Belly Research Institute writes, Stigma exists in a nexus of capitalist exploitation of bodies, cis-heteropatriarchy, and white supremacy, not in a vacuum of morals, as it is commonly treated. These raids occur on the eve of New Orleans' 300th anniversary, and a recent New York Times award of the number one place to visit in a nationwide travel guide after the city and business district spent $6 million for a makeover for Bourbon Street. Like countless other historic red light districts, we know that these redevelopments act as rationale for wiping out the most undesirable and marginal people and traditions of a city. The ongoing attack against sex workers and strip clubs, founded on so-called anti-trafficking efforts, furthers the criminalization and stigmatization of sex work. Our struggle for autonomy won't be built on throwing street sex workers under the bus, as the state and pathetic journalists like Kevin Litton hope for us 
when they back us into corners and demand we distinguish ourselves from illegal forms of sex work. We know that actual victims of trafficking are often most harmed by the work of anti-traffickers who rely on police and state intervention. We know that our dressing room is the only place our abusers are not able to follow us, unless, of course, they are the police. The networks of support, care, information sharing, and conspiring are only heightened by these raids. An overwhelming amount of independent contractors who thrive in sporadic and transient work environments are freely exclaiming, we are fighting back. We won't go down without a fight. It's all of us against the police. The Bourbon Alliance of Responsible Entertainers, BEAR, was formed this past fall by strippers to advocate for themselves against the city's escalating misconduct, misrepresentation, and mistreatment of nightlife workers. BEAR is organized and led by strippers, and includes allies in law, public health, labor organizing, and media. A petition is circulating now which will be presented to the New Orleans City Council and City Planning Commission with the following demands. 1. A future where entertainers may choose where to work, including worker-owned clubs. 2. An entertainer's right to seek gainful work, including in entertainment. 3. Entertainers' autonomy as independent contractors, our right to free speech and to gather freely and four, the right to a safe working environment and the security of our contracts. As carnival season picks up to full swing, messages of resilience highlight the absurdity of Bourbon Street without strippers and overpriced drinks. An absurdity like Mardi Gras without masks or parades. A Bourbon Street without strippers is no bon temps at all. If we can't dance on Mardi Gras, there will be more than palms burning on Ash Wednesday. Against stigma, not sex work. Against the police. Signed, Anonymous Strippers in New Orleans. We love this powerful piece, as well as the fact that the city ordinance that Bear was campaigning against didn't go through. Pathetic journalists here in Minneapolis have also tried their hand at scrutinizing sex workers for a sensational cover story. We see again and again on the cover of the Twin Cities alternative newspaper a pair of fishnet-clad legs with some such story that is degrading, pitying, and just all kinds of stigmatizing about sex work. Here's Irma VIP's take on some of this as a furious pair of fishnet-clad legs. This is City Pages is Cancelled by Irma VIP. In October 2017, City Pages gave journalist Susan Dew the platform to publish a front page article titled Behind the Fantasy at Minneapolis Strip Clubs, which unveils the workplace struggles of strippers at downtown Minneapolis clubs. The article follows a general increase in coverage about the surveillance of the local sex industry due to the impending Super Bowl and cites a recent university outreach project examining workplace hazards in strip clubs. In Behind the Fantasy, 
Du uses unfounded hygienic details about what strippers bring home from work as a hook, as well as some horribly degrading and stigmatizing language in part, calling strippers flesh merchants and the stripping industry the skin trade in the cover title. If readers are unclear about what stigma is, stigma puts the stripper pole under a microscope, even though it is certain that you will find bacteria, microbugs, just as you would in your gut and on the doorknob, touchscreens, and playgrounds. Stigma is what makes using comments about our hygiene an effective hook. It appeals to people's pre-existing belief that strippers are dirty and degraded. We feel it is important to note, too, that to focus on the hygiene of sex workers and use language that resembles descriptions of human trafficking, such as skin trade, falls into a lineage of eugenicist projects of social hygiene that aim to imprison, reform, and sterilize sex workers using claims of their dirtiness as well as myths about white slavery. While the rest of the article gestures at solidarity with strippers as workers and attempts to redeem its covert moralizing and perhaps redeem several other anti-sex work articles that have been featured in city pages in the last year also, by citing examples of very real workplace struggles and worker organizing, the opportunity for this article to be pro-sex worker was entirely missed. First, much of the solidarity aspect of the article is fabricated by further stigmatizing other forms of sex work, e.g. prostitution. Second, this article presents graphic, sensationalizing details which can easily reinforce negative attitudes towards stripping and paternalistic attitudes towards strippers. Third, by not naming the conditions of misogyny, white supremacy, and rape culture that exist everywhere, read, in all workplaces, and which makes strippers' work more challenging and exhausting, this article only further normalizes these conditions. The same week that Behind the Fantasy came out, City Pages also published a shockingly racist article by the same author titled, Moron Gangbanger Charged with Threatening to Kill Minneapolis Cop on Facebook. Calling a black man a moron for saying something against the police for being profiled is beyond a misstep, and is extremely offensive in white supremacist framing of this incredibly tragic turn of events. In a country where black men are regularly killed by police with impunity and imprisoned at astronomical rates, the reality we live in a white supremacist society is obvious, and a headline like this one only reflects that. This kind of over-the-top stigmatizing of so-called criminal behavior is surprisingly uncritical, and even beyond the level of most moderate liberal condemnations of gang activity. Further, by focusing on the fact that this man may or may not have been gang-affiliated, this article entirely misses the real story. We live in a world where you might do 10 years in prison for posting something on Facebook. This level of pervasive surveillance and the obvious selective, i.e. anti-black repression from the state, is far more horrifying and noteworthy than someone expressing their hatred of the forces destroying their life. City Pages has also published multiple articles that have trivialized obstacles to LGBTQ community organizing in the Twin Cities. One article sensationalized the story of a popular community event being raided by police, and another gave the platform to a straight City Pages reader to give their opinion that they didn't think reopening a gay bathhouse would help anyone. To not take a stand against homophobic policing and give a straight person a platform to say what they think about LGBTQ people advocating for taking up space is insulting and harmful. We were reminded through all this that journalism, like speech, is not neutral or objective. A black man interacting with a racist cop is referred to as a moron gangbanger, while a white man that made a rape threat to a woman for ignoring him on Tinder is just a college guy. The cachet of City Pages, as the alternative paper of the Twin Cities, generates expectations in readers that coverage of marginalized issues comes from a progressive perspective. We've noticed these mounting instances of conservatism in its pages and hope to see others respond as well. What is considered alternative is not fixed or necessarily counter-hegemonic, as the emergence of the alt-right has certainly shown. 
When coverage under the alternative or progressive banner bolsters the policing of marginalized people via coded racism, whorephobia, or homophobia, it will be challenged. We recognize this whorephobia, or the fear of whores and whoring, that is behind the policing of sex work, in city newspapers like City Pages, in FOSTA and SESTA, and in the uncertain looks that we get from civilians and family members alike. here, hi, hello, it's Irma VIP, wishes to also note that stigma does not just exist among the normals and their lawmakers. Irma VIP has experienced intense shame around a sexual assault that they faced as a sex worker who was just starting out and learning their boundaries almost exactly three years prior to the release of this podcast. To be clear, though, the majority of the sexual assault that they have experienced in their life has been in the most normal scenarios, not with John's. They feel very strongly that without a support network of people who were not stigmatizing of either sex work or of being new to it, without the people who cared and had advice and resources both online and offline, that they may not be alive and that they certainly would not have found a way to continue doing the work that to them feels like a meaningful and intentional way to financially survive, in a world that has always tried to pin them under the male gaze, in a world in which all bodies are exploited under capitalism, and in a world in which erotic and emotional labors are realities and really go unwaged. Sex workers who are new to sex work are, one, often more vulnerable to violence, and two, have limited options to speak out against it. We try our best to remind ourselves and others that this fact reflects the world, not sex work or the agency and power of sex workers themselves. The narrator has heretofore felt shame in sharing their negative experiences, for fear of stigmatizing their work further, for fear of outing themselves as a sex worker, and even for fear of facing stigma from other sex workers. We have heard too many times the shaming of amateurism that denies the reality that sex work, like anything else, has a learning curve, one which is intensified all the more by existing in a hidden industry. We have also noted other manifestations of this trend in the sex worker activist community 
to build up a so-called professionalism and respectability in ways that exclude the experiences of non-cis, non-white sex workers. Manifestations of horarchy, like strippers shaming full-service sex workers, or high-end escorts shaming street workers, do not exist outside conditions of ableist, cis, and heterowhite supremacy. These tiers of stigmatization are inevitably coded in ways that center the able-bodied, white, cis sex worker experience. Horarchies deepen the violence of stigma, isolating those who don't meet a so-called idealized standard of so-called acceptable behavior, and fail to cultivate a critical sensitivity to the reality that not all possibilities or venues for sex work are accessible to all sex workers. We need to remember who will be most affected when the policing of sex work intensifies. What I would really like to do is be faceless and bodiless and be left alone. Sex workers have always been experts in exchanging secret messages, and we are far from defeated. We are not to be feared unless you try to control us with morals and myths. As the monsters that you make of us, we have no choice but to make chaos with the normals and to create the witching hour of repair with the wise. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to go to our website, bellyresearchinstitute.com, to find full texts, PDFs for books, zines, and posters, and updates for this podcast. You can now subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a few months ago, one user on our site described their experience interacting with the Belly Research Institute in the following way. This space is just too beautiful and rich. My belly is sticking out from overeating. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Belly Research, and our Facebook handle is at Belly Research Institute. 